It was often late at night when neighbour and journalist Margaret Simmons would focus her gaze on the towers. She writes in a prominent news publication online, I can see the towers of the Flemington estate from my living room window. The lights in individual flats blinking off prompt me to my own bedtime. Sometimes if I rise in the night, I can see that someone over there is also awake. As cases of coronavirus started to soar in Victoria, Margaret watched on in disbelief as the public housing towers were placed into the country's harshest lockdown. 3,000 public housing tenants of Flemington and North Melbourne were told they couldn't leave their homes for any reason. Residents were confronted by a mass police presence, seeing hundreds of officers barricade exits. So what's being done to support the 3,000 people affected in buildings like that? We haven't seen anything like this in in Australia, and I think it's indicative of the scenes that we're seeing in some places overseas where there are high-density buildings. The restrictions we've seen anywhere in Australia effectively... What they are going through amounts to house arrest. Making sure that people have access to food, making sure that people can access their medication. If you have a disability, for example, you need to be able to access a Unable to move past their front door, no work, no visits, no grocery shopping, no exercise, nothing. And a lack of communication, this different treatment and issues with the level of support services has resulted in plenty of criticism and increasing frustration of residents. In this two-part series of Think Sustainability, we speak to those living in precarious housing situations in Australia. Tens of thousands sit on public housing waiting lists, and a severe lack of funding in the sector means that those who do make it in are some of the most vulnerable in society. In part two, we speak to international students trapped in the country, forced to navigate challenging landlord-tenant relations. You're listening to Think Sustainability, I'm Julia Karkatsel. If you've got a family with four kids and you're stuck in an apartment and you're in total lockdown, I mean, that's incredibly hard. Alan Morris joined the rest of the public in looking on in dismay at Melbourne's hardest lockdown. Alan is a professor at the Institute for Public Policy and Governance at the University of Technology, Sydney. He has written extensively on housing in Australia, leading in-depth reports on challenges in the market. And then, you you know, you don't speak English or your English is very poor. I mean, you know, it's uh, and you can't get information, etc. So 
I think it was an incredibly difficult situation for all concerned. Day after day, hundreds of police stood their ground as residents propped protest signs against their windows, demanding to be let out, describing themselves as caged animals. Since then, politicians and community members have called for a parliamentary inquiry into the shutdown. And a former United Nations expert on adequate housing made headlines when she said a series of human rights violations were committed. These are exceptional times. And I suppose to be fair to the Victorian government, action had to be taken very, very quickly. There was clearly an enormous amount of panic, you know, that this virus was out of hand. And they were extremely fearful. I mean, clearly there was room for improvement. But I, the general structural features, I suppose, of public or social features of social housing made it a lot more difficult, you know. Public housing is notorious for its high-density, poorly maintained conditions. Tenants share tiny lifts, corridors and laundries, leading some to label the towers vertical cruise ships, with many drawing parallels between previous coronavirus outbreaks on cruises and the potential for its spread again. Because public housing is so difficult to get into, a lot of the people in public housing were families, you know, very crowded. I mean, I saw, you know, you saw images of the two-bedroom apartments, with eight people, etc. So, of course, if one person gets it, that's it, you know, goes to the rest of the family will get it. If one person gets it in, um, in a public housing complex, then, you know, going up and down the lifts, other people will get it. In combination with overcrowding, many living in the towers are reliant on precarious employment, often forced to head out to work when offered shifts or when opportunities arise in most cases, regardless of COVID symptoms. So the people are working, probably are working very intermittently, and they need those jobs, so they will be going to work. Whereas you know, the middle classes living in um, freestanding houses or terraces or whatever, they don't have to interact with their neighbours like that. So, you know, it's very different. And even um, if you look at an apartment, you know, an ordinary apartment block, not public housing, a lot of those people would be be working, but they would be working at home. So, you know, there there wouldn't be that constant interaction. Whereas, you know, if you're in a public housing apartment, you want to get out and, you know, so there's probably quite a lot of movement. In 2018 to 2019, just under 800,000 Australians lived in social housing. Social housing is a term used to describe a combination of both community housing plus public housing. Public housing is provided by the government to assist people on low incomes, those who can't afford a home or may have problems renting in the private sector. Community housing is provided by non-profit organisations. Since the mid-90s, the building of public housing has really grown almost to a halt. Very little new public housing has been built. As a proportion of the housing stock, Social housing, as de- let's call it social housing for the moment, has declined from around about 6% of all housing to around about 3%. So in other words, so in order to get into public housing, it's extremely difficult, very, very hard. You have to have very, very um, you know, significant reasons. So um, generally, you have to be on the verge of a homelessness. Victoria has the lowest level of public housing per capita in Australia. The OECD considers Australia's social housing stock to be small, at 4.4% of all housing, compared to other countries such as England, France and Finland. 
And as Alan says, less public housing has meant that those who do make it are some of the most vulnerable in society. From the mid-90s especially, you've had increase in what I would call residualization of public housing. In other words, the people who enter in public housing now, a lot of them are severely disadvantaged and have and a lot of them would have quite complex needs. Unfortunately, in Australia, it's become, because it's become so residualized, it's also become very, very stigmatized. Alan says this process is attributable to a number of factors. Housing is a very expensive commodity, and it's a wicked policy problem. I think what has happened in Australia is you've, you've, you have now what is often called the financialization of housing. And what this refers to is housing being seen as this investment rather than a, as sh- basic as shelter. And that has really pushed up the price of housing to such an extent that now the economy is really premised on high housing prices because what high housing prices do is that they encourage people to consume because people feel that they've got this asset they can always fall back on. So it becomes this vicious cycle So I think we have to break that cycle where housing is no longer seen as an investment. And then there's also the private rental sector, which, you know, is very minimally regulated. And we really have to strengthen the regulation of the private rental sector so that people have a lot more security and that rents are controlled to some extent. And for those those people, people dependent on government benefits for survival, the private rental system is really not really viable because if you're paying, you know, if you say on a um, disability support pension, which is around about 450 a week, you know, you'll be using at least half of that, if not 80% of that, if you're renting in Sydney. It's very, very difficult to find a decent place under $400 a week. And of course, if you've got children, it's, it's you know, you'll need a couple of bedrooms. So, um, The private rental system is really, for many people, has become impossible. The nature of Australia's expensive and turbulent housing market has resulted in thousands signing up for public housing. There are currently over 50,000 applications on the Victorian Housing Register. The Victorian Public Tenants Association estimates that the state's social housing waitlist will grow to 100,000 Victorians by 2021. Enough people to fill the MCG. So not everybody can make it in the market. You know, people have disability, single parents, they have caring responsibilities, etc. So a lot of those people are applying for public housing. Whether they get in or not is a different question. So, you know, people are languishing on this public housing waiting list for years. In the 2019-2020 Budget Estimates Report, the committee found that the Victorian government budgeted for $200 million in public housing, resulting in just under 2,000 new homes built. That amount would allow for only 2% of applicants on the Victorian Housing Register to be housed. remember my dad used to always say to us that public housing is one reason why Australia is known as the lucky country, 
because that's what they called it back then, Australia, the lucky country. This is Fiona Ross. She's lived in public housing for over 20 years. I come from a family of five children and we lived in public housing for a few years in Bendigo in the early 60s after my parents migrated to Australia. Fiona currently lives in inner city Melbourne in a public housing walk-up, a term used to describe three-storey residencies as opposed to high-rise tower blocks. On a day-to-day level, when it's sunny, a lot of us will sit outside on the steps or we'll bring out a rug. We'll share food and talk, have lunch or afternoon tea together. We've, we've got a playground here for the children. And neighbours will walk past and stop and have a chat. Experience. I live next door to a lovely woman from Ethiopia and her three beautiful children. And we're like one big family. I help the kids with their homework. I eat delicious Ethiopian food when I'm there. So I think people don't realise um, that a lot of people are very, very happy living in public housing because we enjoy part of being part of a close-knit community. And of course, having the security of a roof over your head, a permanent roof over your head is, is unbelievably important. had one tenant who would answer the door. Every time I knocked on the door, he'd answer the door naked. Later on in the afternoon, I'd knock on the door of another tenant to inspect her apartment. And uh, every time I knocked on her door, she thought I was somebody else. And I was I was the health visitor, you know. Sarah Wilkinson is a building surveyor and professor in the School of Built Environment at the University of Technology, Sydney. <laughs> I can still remember their names decades later. She's telling me about a time she spent retrofitting social housing blocks in the UK. So we would put on new roofs, new windows, new bathrooms, new kitchens, redecorate throughout, all with the tenants in situ. So, you know, you had these housing tenants living on a building site for 18 months. And you did have, you had... You know, people with mental health issues, you had people with drug and alcohol issues, you had all sorts of things to contend with. And naively, when I started the job, I thought it was all technical and it was all about building surveying and retrofitting buildings and then quickly realised that it was actually 90% social and it was about problem solving, about learning to listen to people and empathy Sadly, since that time, the funding for that sector has kind of disappeared and the social housing tenants have been demonised to a certain extent. Sarah says the process of resigilisation is harmful. Probably since the 80s, we've got this sort of prevailing neoliberal worldview and perception that people choose to be in public housing because they think society owes them something. They're bludging off others and they're not worthy of good housing or secure employment that pays a living wage. And sadly, this is the prevailing orthodoxy and it's been very powerful. And the result is that these communities are given as little as it's possible to get away with. 
Sarah says having access to external green space, like Fiona's community garden, or even just retrofitting existing public housing blocks, is key to the sustainability of these buildings and the emotional well-being of their residents. In the 1980s in East London, Sarah advised a housing cooperative set up by three Cambridge University graduates. The graduates got a mortgage from the Greater London Council for £74,000 and bought 18 Georgian Terrace houses. And they converted them into 32 housing units. So they were a combination of one-bedroom flats to four-bedroom family houses. Now, every single property had a garden of varying sizes and each garden was connected at the back to a pathway and a couple of common spaces where there were kids' uh, swings and frames and an area for barbecues and co-op gatherings. And that was fantastic because you had single elderly people, you had young families, you had established families. It's still going now. Um, and yeah, you know, it's a real community. And these people were responsible for the maintenance and the upkeep of the houses. And, um, you know, many of the children that... Um, were just running, you know, were babies when I was there. You know, now I know that they've all been to university and they've got jobs and graduated, and that is community housing at its best. The Victorian Department of Health and Human Services has previously said walk-ups like Fiona's fail to meet contemporary building standards as they are inaccessible to some residents with mobility issues and can be costly to maintain, heat and cool. These properties have become less and less fit for purpose. and So we've got a long-term lack of investment in maintenance and upgrading of our existing public housing stock and a lack of provision of new housing stock over a number of decades. There is a lack of willingness to invest in green public housing. But with the right investment, Sarah says we can create more of these external green spaces and livable areas. So, I mean, we've got the technological know-how. We can build sustainable housing that's very cheap to operate, healthy buildings, building new housing which is healthy, adopts either low or zero energy technologies to keep your operating costs down and your greenhouse gas emissions down. For existing stock, it means retrofitting the stock to improve energy efficiency, reduce leakage from the building, increase water efficiency, airflow, etc. Economically, it means lower operating costs. And socially, it means looking after each other, creating safe housing. Fiona says she feels fortunate to live in her inner city walk-up. She understands the importance of secure housing for financial stability and emotional well-being. But divestment in public housing has made her concerned for the future. 
Another thing that the government is doing is it's starving public housing of the funds it needs to survive. And it's instead of uh, public housing getting the funds, it's siphoning it off and redirecting it to these companies. During the second half of the 20th century, public housing was designed to support working communities, providing secure accommodation for people to go into the workforce. Now, the social housing system involves all levels of government, the not-for-profit sector and other organisations. Fiona is currently campaigning with her organisation, Friends of Public Housing, against the stock transfer of government-owned public housing to community housing non-profit organisations. They are private, non-government business models of housing. They might technically be not-for-profits, but they are certainly profit-driven. The major players that win the government tenders are called housing associations and they are huge corporations and are usually property developers as well and their profits go back into their empire building. There's mega millions of dollars swirling around the community housing industry. Victoria has transferred more public housing stock to the community housing sector than any other state since the 2016 to 2017 financial year. The number of community housing dwellings in Australia has more than tripled from just over 32,000 in 2006 to over 100,000 dwellings in 2019. And there's many reasons why that, that's uh, disastrous. It's disastrous for the tenants because they lose rights. Melbourne's Community Legal Service has seen a higher proportion of community housing residents present with problems of eviction and repairs issues than public housing residents with some community housing owners found to have used eviction as a form of managing difficult behaviour instead of as a last resort. But not all community housing organisations neglect the rights of their tenants. Fiona is simply calling for more federal funding. The danger is we won't know what's happening until public housing is virtually gone and homelessness is rife and out of control. We need more public housing, not less, and not just for now, but we need to think of future generations too, because once public housing is gone, it's gone forever. I think there's an incredible failure in Australia the moment. You know, so many people are really marginal and of course um, they're not taken cognizance of. Social housing is an incredibly, you know, can play an incredibly important role in terms of creating a decent society. I think what is required is a major, major endeavour to increase the supply of affordable housing. Many are calling for a national housing strategy as part of the economic recovery out of COVID-19. I mean, if one looks at the response, what is happening in terms of how to re-stimulate the economy in response to the pandemic crisis, social housing is not, is, it hasn't been mentioned by the federal government. Now, to me, that would be an obvious central plank of any... Uh, endeavour to re-stimulate the economy. It will immediately put thousands of people to work. After the GFC, social housing initiatives were enacted as part of the National Building Stimulus. 
just under 20,000 new homes were built. To their credit, the Rudd government did do that in 2009. And um, it was very, very effective. You know, it employed a lot of people and made a big difference to people's lives because they could access uh, affordable housing. Housing should be a human right and people should um, have control over their environment. And, you know, if you're living in affordable, secure, adequate housing, that really does create a foundation for a decent life and is empowering. Think Sustainability is made possible with the support of 2SER Radio, the University of Technology Sydney, and is heard around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Think Sustainability is made in Sydney, which sits on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, whose sovereignty was never ceded. You can subscribe to Think Sustainability wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Julia Carcatzel. Thanks for your company.